is in the New Testament. It's, so it's going to be toward the end of your Bible. If you don't have your Bible with you, we'll have the words on the screen. There are a bunch of books that begin with the letter T. We'll have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, then Titus. If you go to Philemon or Hebrews or James, you've gone too far. So we're in the book of Titus. It will be for this month of May. It's a short little book. I just encourage you. I mean, the whole thing's on just one page in my Bible. So I would encourage you to read it this week. I've been listening to it in my car as I drive around trying to get it in my head as I get ready to preach on it. And But today we're just going to look at the opening reading, just those first four verses. And interestingly, uh, at least to me, maybe not to you, but the opening greeting is one of the longest of all of Paul's letters. Paul wrote 13 epistles or letters to churches that we have in our New Testament. And this one is the second longest opening greeting. And the way that's figured, if you count the words between when Paul identifies himself and then he identifies who it is that he is writing to, which is his pattern in all of his letters... This is the second longest. Romans is the longest. Titus is the second longest. And like any good introduction, this introduction sets out the themes that Paul is going to be talking about in the letter. So I just want to look at a couple of those themes today. I want to read verses 1 through 4 to you. We'll read them together. Be listening for what you think the themes may be. And then I'll pray for us if we will dig in and look at a couple of the themes that we'll find in the book of Titus. So if you would, hear now God's word that he inspired through the Apostle Paul, beginning in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And in his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for preserving this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus. Thank you for showing us what it should look like as your people do life both within and outside the church. Surely one of the reasons you preserved this letter is so that we would know what that is to look like. And so I pray that you would teach us what you would have for us as your people. And Father, I ask that you be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I've read through Titus several times this week, it's, been, it's just been so applicable to everyday life. First, uh, chapter 1, we'll look at the beginning today. Next week, we'll look at the rest of chapter 1, and it talks about... Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete, and he's telling him, look, I want you to appoint elders in every town so that there are churches in every town on the island of Crete, and here are the kind of leaders that you are looking for in the church. These are the kinds of men you're to appoint to this position. 
Well, we're electing elders on May the 23rd in the congregational meeting. I mean, that stuff's going to be really applicable for us, right? Then when you get to Titus chapter 2, Paul writes to Titus about what these churches should be doing, what the people within the church should be doing, and how older women should pour into younger women, how older men should pour into younger men, how Titus is to set up an example for them, the kinds of things that should be taught in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2 is very applicable for us. Then in Titus 3, he turns a corner and begins to talk about what the people have got, what our relationships should be with people outside the church. we got to be with people outside the church, right? So this letter is going to be very applicable to our lives. I'm very excited to study it with you. But today, I just want to look at two themes that we're going to see Throughout this letter, I'll trace them for you. I'll show you how we're going to see these themes throughout the letter. But I just want to introduce you to the, the themes. There are two big themes that he introduces here in the introduction that will be running like threads throughout the letter. And the two themes are this. This is what we'll focus on today. The, the first theme is God's grace. And so I'm going to implore you as we look today to see God's grace. And I'll show you how he comes back to that topic again and again throughout the letter. Then the second theme that you hear in the introduction that he will continue to emphasize throughout is strive for godliness. Over and over again, he talks about striving for godliness, or he talks about doing what is good. He mentions that like seven times in one page here, just three chapters. So I'm going to look at and introduce those themes to us that we're going to see throughout the book. See God's grace, strive for godliness. Let's look at those two things together. Number one, see God's grace. You see the grace of God explicitly mentioned there in chapter 1 and verse 4. He comes back to it in chapter 2 and verse 11 in a very important text when he says that it's the grace of God that brings salvation. Well, I need that, right? And it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God that's going to help us to do what is right, to strive for what is good. He talks about the grace of God in chapter 3, that we've been justified by His grace and have in our heirs of all their Christ and our hope of eternal life is because of the grace of God. That He ends the book. The very last thing He says is grace be with y'all, you all, right? Third person, plural. So the book begins with this idea of grace. It ends with grace, and this theme runs throughout. Let me, let's look at the grace here in this introduction. I want you to see three things. Gosh, I listed like half a dozen, and I'm only going to talk to you about three of them because I can already spell lunch, and if you wonder what's cooking, that's lunch. And Alex is going to take it out to the Von Herman, so you may want to help him to be sure that it all gets out there. So sometimes I preach shorter when I can smell lunch. So just three things about the grace of God. I want you to see God's grace. First, look how big the grace of God is. You see how big it is? I mean, I'll be obvious to you, but think about it. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's Huge grace, ginormous grace. You know this man, Paul. You know his story. He's always considered himself to 
covenant of God, as he says here. He was a Jew who was advancing uh, past others. He was a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was working hard to make himself acceptable to God. In fact, let me just tell you what he says in Paul's own words. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4, Paul wrote this. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, so he's got confidence in himself, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul was obsessed with keeping the Old Testament law. He saved the way I kept it. I was faultless. I kept the letter of the law. Paul's always considered himself a servant of God. If you keep reading there in Philippians 3, he makes clear that the service he offered to God was to establish his own righteousness, to make himself acceptable to God. That's what his motivation was. And he says later in Philippians 3 that he did not accept the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Writes about that faith. You see, the Apostle Paul did not see his need for a Savior. In fact, he denied his need for a sacrifice for sin because he kept the law flawlessly in his mind. So yes, he's always been a servant of God, but something changed. Now he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's one sent by Jesus himself. That's amazing. We think of Paul, the guy who wrote 13 letters, the guy who went on these missionary journeys. Originally, he was Saul. And you can read in Acts 9 that he was so zealous for Judaism that he persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 9 that he was breathing out murderous threats against them, that he went to the high priest and got letters so that he could arrest Christians who would say that Jesus was the Messiah. He voted for them to be killed. He would even travel to other cities to arrest them and try to get them killed by the death penalty. He was obsessed. Paul, again, in his own words, says he was obsessed with persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. And this is what he says. Again, Paul in his own words, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. It's what Paul was like before he met Jesus. Now this man identifies himself as a servant of God and an, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you see the grace in that? How big God's grace is? Listen, I don't know what you have done, okay? I don't know what it is that you would not want anybody else to know about. 
We often think to ourselves, well, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody. Paul's killed people because they were Christians. And no matter what you've done, how bad you think it is, Paul shows that God forgives the worst of sinners. His grace is huge, it's big, it's ginormous. Paul even serves as an example that God uses in his service those who have horribly sinned. So listen, whatever you've done in your past, no matter how bad it is, don't think you're disqualified from receiving the grace of God. Don't believe the lie that you can't come to him, that you can't find acceptance in him. Don't believe that, that he would never use you to advance his kingdom. Because here's Paul talking about being a servant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was. God loves broken and messed up people. He uses broken and messed up people to accomplish his purposes. See the grace of God, how big it is. But second, look at the at how transforming the grace of God is. Do you see that? Look how transforming. It's huge. It's big. It covers over a multitude of sin. We're going to sing later. But also look at how transforming it is. First of all, it transformed Paul, right? Totally different person. Totally different guy. But the grace of God doesn't just transform Paul. It transforms us. You know, we tend to think that if we're good enough, that if we're good people, if we do enough good things, if the good outweighs the bad sometimes we think, then God will allow us into his family. We sometimes we think that's the way it works. Or even after we're in God's family, we think that if we do enough good things, then we can stay in God's good favor. But look what Paul says here. What, why is he a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ? Why does he say? He says it's for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Notice Paul doesn't outline what we must do to be accepted by God. Instead, he talks about the faith of those who have been chosen by God. Even when he talks about this knowledge of the truth, you need to understand that that's a term Paul has used over and over in his letters. And when he talks about a knowledge of the truth, he's not just talking about learning facts. How do I know? Well, you can read in 2 Timothy, the book right before this, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 7, where he describes a group of people who are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, same phrase that he uses here. Right? So you can always be learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. This knowledge of the truth that he's talking about is something that changes, it's something that transforms, it's something that affects our everyday lives, it's something that changes the way that we lean into the world. That's why the text here says what? It's a knowledge of the truth that what? That leads to godliness. Not that we become members of God's family because we're godly. No, Christ died for the ungodly. 
God invites into his family the worst of sinners. But then those who express faith in him, those who begin to see the grace of God, experience a transformation in their lives. Let me be clear. We don't become children of God by doing good things, by being good enough. God shows mercy in adopting children who have faith in Him and want to grow in a relationship with Him. And then kids in this family who have faith grow in a knowledge of the truth. And that leads to godliness. So I think we're going to see, look down at Titus 2 and verse 11 if you've got your Bible open. When he talks about grace, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation, right? So grace is bringing salvation, has appeared to them. Verse 12, it, what? The grace of God. Not only does the grace bring us salvation, but it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-control with upright and godly lives in the present age. This same grace that saves us, that same grace transforms us. We say it here sometimes like this, that God loves broken and messed up people. But he loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and in our mess. And in his grace, he transforms us. You see how transforming the grace of God is. See the grace. See how big it is. See how transforming it is. What other one? Look at how long-lasting this grace of God is. Let me tell you why it's important for you to see how long-lasting it is. People who come to faith and begin to walk with Jesus for a while, maybe we grow some in godliness, but we become more aware of our sin. And when sometimes we begin to think, we begin to believe this lie, you know, I've been walking with God for a while, but I keep having all this sin, I keep becoming more aware of more sin in my life. And, and at some point, God's just going to say, that's it, I'm tired of it. You know, you should be beyond this by now. You shouldn't sin anymore. So it's, it's like we have this expectation that we're going to get to the point that we no longer sin in this life. Like the Christian life is not a fight against our flesh, but it always will be, right? Go back to the last sermon series. But sometimes we believe God's grace is going to run out. Maybe I have to cover up and act like I'm doing better than I really am because I don't really want to admit to myself or to other people or to God that I still need the grace of God in the Christian life. Because I continue to mess up. I continue to fall short. And we get worried that God's grace is going to run out and he'll say enough. But I want you to know, though God is grieved by our sin, Though we may experience the effects of our sin, though God disciplines his children, he disciplines those he loves, I want you to hear very clearly, God's grace for God's people never runs out. Look how long-lasting it is. Look in verses 2 and 3. What does he say? That there's a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God. Do you hear what he's saying? God assures, he talks about this 
hope of eternal life. And this hope is not like a wishful thinking. It's a confidence. that We have this confidence that we're placing our, our confidence and our trust in eternal life. Because this relationship that we have with them extends into all eternity. That it goes forward. That it never ends. And when did God make this promise? That we can have a relationship with him throughout all eternity. He made it before the beginning of time. Do you hear that? He promised it before the beginning of time. Think about that with me. Before the beginning of time, God's grace, it began before time in eternity past. God's grace is there towards us. And it extends beyond time into eternity into the future. It will not run out. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We'll sing in a few moments. Paul says here, that this grace is shown to us now at the appointed season, at the appointed time. Listen to me. It is no accident that you are here right now hearing the preaching of the word. And it may be hard for you to believe what you're hearing. Because as humans, we've never experienced a relationship where somebody continued to love us no matter what. Few of us have ever seen a relationship like that. But I'm telling you, God has promised grace to his people. The God who does not lie. The one who does not change like shifting shadows. Has a love for his children that will not end. Oh, look how long-lasting the grace of God is. Do you see the grace of God? Oh, there are other pictures of grace. Let me move on to that second thing. Second thing, strive for godliness. See the grace, strive for godliness. Paul writes a lot to Titus that they should do what is good. It's important that they do what is good. Evidently, the people on Crete were bad people. He writes about it here. There's false teachers. He says, look, I want your leaders to be different from those people on Crete. I want them to do what is good. I want them to stand out by doing what is good. He makes this phrase, he makes this comment several times. You see it there in chapter 1 and verse 8. That leaders in the church are to be hospitable, to have people into their homes. And there are people who love what is good. In chapter 2 and verse 3, he tells the older women to teach the younger ones that they're to teach them what is good. In verse 7, he's saying, look, you, Titus, and the older men, and everything set before the younger men an example by doing what is good. In verse 14, when he talks about that grace of God that brings salvation and that transforms us, and it creates a people who are eager to do good. Chapter 3, he comes back to it. Remember I said, that's where he talks about how we're to act with people outside the church. And he says, remind the people to be subject to their rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be 
ready to do whatever is good. To keep going in chapter 3, he says that the people should devote themselves to doing what is good. At the very end, the second to last verse, he says our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. He's very concerned about seeing the grace of God and that leading to our doing good. What is good? How do we know what it is? God is good. He's the only one that's good. And he defines what good is. And so godliness, striving for godliness, is striving for goodness. To be more like God is what it looks like to strive to be good. You know, it's so interesting to me, in the church today, especially, let me just say this, the evangelical church, 20th and 21st century of the United States, individualistic culture, very pragmatic people, we tend to read a book like this, and we look very carefully for, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do, and I'll go do it. And Titus writes a lot about what we're supposed to do. We're going to talk about that. But listen, that's not the entire message of this book. What this book says is, see the grace of God, then do what is good. See the grace of God towards you, then strive for godliness. Listen, you can't be good on your own. It's only the grace of God that's going to enable you to do what is right and what is good. It's only the grace of God that, that will lead you in that direction to do what is good and what is Right. It's only by seeing the grace of God that we have the, the fuel, the desire to do what is good. So don't leave that part out. Listen, I know you're ready. Well, just tell me what to do. What am I supposed to do in church? What am I supposed to do? We're going to talk about that. Don't lose sight of the grace of God. That's what fuels our doing. In fact, I'm just going to phrase it that way so we get used to doing that. When we see the grace of God, how big it is, how transforming it is, how long Lasting it is. What difference does it make? It makes a lot. Let me just mention two. When we see the grace of God, we want to share it with other people. God longs for the glory of his grace to be spread throughout the world. And as we grow in godliness, we have that longing as well. We want more people to experience his grace, his mercy, and as we taste and see that God is good and we experience the love that he has for broken and messed up people we want other people to experience that love and so we tell them about his grace and his mercy and this letter talks with us all the time the elders are supposed to behave in that way to make the faith attractive that the older women teach the women what is good so that they would walk in God's ways the older men and Titus teach the younger men all these are examples of sharing the grace of God with others. What about the intro? Well, you see it explicitly there in verse 4. He wishes grace and peace from the Father. But look what he says about Titus. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Oh, was Titus Paul's son? Not biologically, no. They had different backgrounds, different nationalities. They were different races. But Paul refers to Titus as his true son because Titus was converted through the ministry of Paul. 
Paul uses very similar language of Timothy. And he often refers to himself as the father of those who receive Christ through his ministry. So what we see here is Paul, as he's passing on this faith to Titus, we see that when we see the grace of God, we, we pass on the faith to other people. Paul shows us that following Jesus means that we know him and we make him known. And that we long for others to come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And that just as God is always inviting more kids into his family, but as we become more like God, as we grow in godliness, then we're always inviting more people into this family of faith as well. Let me show you one other one. Just one other one before we go. When we see the grace of God, how big it is, how transforming it is, how long-lasting it is, it brings unity and reconciliation amongst very different people within the church. Brings unity and reconciliation. Do you see that here? Paul is Jewish. He was very Jewish. We just looked at that in Philippians 3, how Jewish he was. Titus was a Gentile. He was Greek. Jewish people looked down on Greek people. Paul's a Roman citizen. Titus was Greek. He was not a Jew. Jewish people thought that Gentiles were, were little better than dogs. That they're outside the faith, that they're not acceptable to God. Yet after seeing the grace of God for Paul, Paul then says that Titus is in the same family with him. He says, you talk about my true son. But it's like they're in the same family because they've been adopted by the same father. They have the same faith, right? He says, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. They have the same family. They have the same Father. They have the same faith. They have the same Savior. They both need to be rescued from their sin rather than relying on their own goodness to save them. Instead of hatred, Instead of division, seeing the grace of God has brought this unity, this reconciliation among men that would normally hate each other outside of the church. How does that happen? When we see the grace of God, it brings peace between people. You see, when we realize our acceptance by God is based on His grace and not our goodness, not our holiness, not anything we do, guess what? Peace comes. Peace first with God, Romans 5 would say, and then peace with one another. Now how does that work? If I'm made right with God by His grace, then how come there's peace with one another? Because we recognize that we all fall short of the grace of God. You see, to join our church, you can hear the vows later when we do a baptism. We have to admit that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God and have no hope save in his sovereign mercy. 
And once we make that admission that none of us have any hope apart from Christ, once we make that admission, it puts an end, it should put an end to assessing who is more deserving of God's grace. Because the answer to that question is none of us are deserving of God's grace. That we're accepted by him only from what Jesus has done. And when we begin to see the grace of God for us, we realize that we are all equal members of a group of people who have no hope apart from Christ. And that fact is what unites us. Recognizing that we all fall short, that we all need the Savior should end any basis for pride or arrogance amongst the people of God. The fact that we need forgiveness from God based on his grace alone should prompt us to be more forgiving, to be more patient, to be more gracious with one another. Because if I see the grace of God for me and how much I've been forgiven, then I should be able to forgive you for the ways that you sinned against me. Some of you went through the new members class last week or Redeemer 101, we call it now. And I talked about that first vow and how it's really important but that first vow is, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, because it shapes our expectations of what life in the church is like. What we always say is this, that if I acknowledge I'm a sinner, and you realize everybody who joins here has acknowledged that they're sinners, but that means if you come to church here and you get involved like I hope that you will in the lives of people and doing life together and in community groups together and learning from each other, and if there are those bonds that are developed here, listen to me, it's not a matter of if you will be sinned against. It's just a matter of when. Because we're sinners and we sin against each other. But recognizing that we're forgiven by the grace of God and that God has forgiven a debt so great of mine that I can be more forgiving and gracious and extend grace to you because it's the grace that I've received from the Father. Oh, beloved, do not forget. We do not all gather together because we believe the same about everything. We gather together because we believe the same about the most important thing. That we're sinners in need of a Savior. That the finished work of Christ on the cross is the only hope for our own hearts, for our own homes, for our own families, and for all of humanity. Oh, beloved, there's so much more here. I want you to see how God desires life in the church to go. We'll be in this book for another month. I'm glad that you're here today. I hope you'll continue to join us. Read the book this week. Let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving this letter so that we can see what you intend life in the church to look like. I pray that you would teach us that in the coming weeks. And I pray that even now you would prepare our hearts to come to your table, not because we deserve it, not because there's anything good in us. Thank you that we can come and sit at your table because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, because of your extending his saving work to us, because of your mercy and grace. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see the grace and it would drive us to do what is good.